in the book of John, John chapter 3. These are the, this is probably, well, at least verse 16 is the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to listen and really try hard to listen. Because I know for me, when I hear this verse, it's, it, it just becomes like, oh, I, I've got it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gives them, you know, and, and I go on from there. So let's all listen together to what God has to say to us today from his word. This is his holy inspired word for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. We'll pray so that we'll be able to receive God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We are aware of our need for your love. We are aware of our need for your grace. But Lord, make us more aware, I pray. God, make us more aware of our need for your love, of the world's need for your love. Lord, Lord, impress upon us the greatness of your love. Help us listen with, with new ears. Help us see with new eyes. Lord, help us in our hearts. Lord, soften our hearts towards you. And God, I pray that as a church, we would be moved by your love even more as a result of your word today. Empower me to preach, empower everyone to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, way back in 1996, which doesn't seem like very long ago for some of you and others weren't alive, but back in 96, uh, I watched a really dumb, generally terrible movie. It wasn't the only dumb, terrible movie I've seen, but it was about an ice age man. He was minding his own business. He gets there's an earthquake that happens, and he gets locked somehow in a block of ice. You have to kind of check your brain. Uh, somehow he got buried and frozen. He wasn't dead, but he was out. Somehow, thousands of years later, in this block of ice, he ends up in the backyard of a California suburb of Encino. And somehow, he's not dead. He was suspended unconscious, and, and then two teens discover him after they're digging in their backyard after an earthquake, and they discover this block of ice. Again, check your mind at the door. It doesn't make sense how a block of ice would survive in California, but nonetheless, he, they put him in the garage, and he comes back to life. And there was something, even though the movie was ridiculous, it was silly, um, the acting was terrible, there was something about it that stuck out to me. And the thing that, that kind of hit me is after he awoke, everything that we take for granted, everything that we kind of go through our day just not noticing, he didn't take for granted. It affected him. From homes, the fact that homes existed, 
electricity, running water, uh, toilets that flush, the radio, recorded music being played on the stereo, uh, TV, cars, everything that we think of, blacktops, everything you can imagine in our modern world was brand new. Imagine being a, you know, living in the, in the cave era and then now being awakened to the modern 20th century. And when he encountered every modern convenience, it was like the shock and awe kind of moment for him. And it was one moment after another of surprise and awe. And he had this childlike sense of discovery and appreciation for the world that was that's really lost on most of us as adults. Even my own kids, when they discovered things in the backyard, a, a pretty rock or a bug, um, they're amazed. And somehow we, we lose wonder at the things we see all the time. And the thing that struck me about the movie and stayed with me is that he experienced wonder all the time at what we no longer find wonderful. He was grateful. He experienced joy at discovering what we take for granted. In many ways, it reminded me how good we have it now and, and what I'm most grateful for in this life, in my life. And I think there's a lesson for us when it comes to this passage in the Bible, there's a, there's a lesson for us that sometimes we take for granted what's most familiar, and we, we fail to see the wonder in it. And this verse is perhaps the most familiar verse. Well, we, I pulled some pictures of the internet of, of, of ways you might have seen this verse in the past. You might have seen it in the middle of a goalpost, John three sixteen. In the middle of a goalpost, or, or maybe it's held up at a baseball game or some guy illegally running across home plate with John 3.16. I think he's about to get tased. I'm not really sure what's happening there. Um, or, you know, everybody's favorite, Tim Tebow, wearing John 3.16 on his face. Now, actually, it might not be everybody's favorite. A lot of people here might not care for him. But it's really common. And, and I think that if we say, okay, let me set aside the familiarity and let's approach it kind of like Encino Man. Let's, let's approach it as if it was new to us. If we approach it that way, our minds, I'll submit to you, will be blown. If we say, okay, let's set aside everything we know and look at it as if it's brand new, it, it can become a shock in all moment where it rekindles a gratitude in your heart, joy in your heart at what we've always taken for granted. Because what we'll see in this passage is, is the measure of God's love. We're going to see the, the means of God's love as well. And then we're going to see the mission of God's love. And, and those three things, the, the measure, the means, and, and the mission of God's love are truly mind-blowing. If we see the measure of God's love, if we, if we see the means of God's love, the mission of his love, it, it's truly mind-blowing. It, it really is. These verses, they're likely John reflecting back, although it, in a lot of Bibles, this is read in your Bible. Um, I, I get that, but if you notice the, the tense changes from first person to kind of third person, and it's kind of fluid. You don't know exactly where Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus ends and, and where John's reflection begins. And, and that's okay because it's all God's inherently inspired word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Whether that's on Jesus' lips or John's. And, and, and then although the tense changes, it seems to be John reflecting on Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And he goes from the first person to the third person. And well, we don't know how Nicodemus, as we mentioned, responded that night. Later on... Later on, he looked up to Jesus on the cross as he took him down. 
But John, he, he was thinking about that conversation with Nicodemus, and as he's, he's selecting that conversation to include by the Holy Spirit, he's including this, and he's thinking about what it meant. He thought about the fact that Jesus said, he, you must be born again. And then in verse 15 and 14 and 15, right before our text, if you look down your Bibles, if you have a Bible, and by the way, I'd encourage you always to bring your Bible if you can. In, in John 14 and 15, it says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And here's what John is is keying off of that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, now why is that surprising? It might not surprise you. We think, of course, whoever believes. But think about who Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He was a preeminent Pharisee. He, he, kept the law in every way. And so when he heard those words, and then when John heard those words, the disciples heard those words, they hear something that is shocking. Whoever? Whoever? Jesus, isn't salvation of the Jews? Doesn't it come through? The Jews do it through God's people. Now it's for whoever? What about all the ways of being clean? What about the ways of purification? You know, John has been dismantling each of those things. He's been, he's been replacing each of those systems of the Old Testament in the book of John so far. He's, he's replacing the system of purification with the purification of Christ, Christ's new wine. He's, he's replacing the Old Testament way of coming to God and worship through Jesus now we come. And then he's replacing this confidence in the flesh and our abilities. And now he says, whoever believes. When he says whoever, that's Jew or Gentile, Ponte, everyone who believes. And it was mind-blowing. It shattered the paradigm of Nicodemus and the disciples. Whoever believes. And in the words of Jesus, the, the measure, the means, the mission of God's love are displayed. And, and on all the Jews who had come to believe that, that salvation was only for God's chosen people, even though they, that God has said that that he would bless all the nations through them, they'd come to the place where it was only of the Jews, and if you wanted to be saved, you had to become a Jew. That's why in the first century, Jews struggled a lot with that. They had to undo all those years of thinking. And Jesus says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Wow. Whoever? It's not limited to Jewish faith and practice anymore. It's not, it's not limited to just those who've been circumcised, who've, who've been purified and followed all those laws. It's, it's not limited. Whoever? And, and then what we see right at the outset is the reasoning for that is the measure of God's love is great. It's not limited in any, any way. The measure of God's love is great. It's far more great and vast than we can imagine because it says whoever believes can have eternal life. And it tells us why. It says for God. John's thinking is well, how in the world can whoever believe? Well, that's because God, for God, because God so loved the world. How did he love the world? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, now, now I want to think about that for a moment before we get to the, the details of the measure of God's love. What we see here is the first cause for our salvation. 
You know, sometimes we doubt our salvation because we think it depends upon us, and yet we see here right at the very beginning what motivated God to bring about his plan for salvation was nothing in us. It wasn't some merit that, that God saw in us and motivated him to send his son. The measure wasn't based on merit or choosing. It's, it was God's own great love. Not our love, but God's love that began the plan of salvation to redeem man from the curse that we brought on ourselves. And this verse expresses just how much God loves the world. When I, when I read this verse, I immediately think of the fact that it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So if you've read your Old Testament, that you'll, you'll be familiar with another story way earlier, another account of someone else giving their, or being willing to give their only son. And it was meant to foreshadow God's giving of his only son, and that's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac in Genesis God calls Abraham. He says, I want you to take your son. I want you to take your only son, Isaac. You know, the one that I promise through you, all the nations will be blessed. I want you to take him, and I want you to go up the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And so Abraham goes, and he goes willingly because he, he loves God, because he's experienced God's love. He wants to obey God, and he trusts in God. He was willing to give up his only son in order to love and obey God, and that's, but that's understandable to some degree. Now, we, we, we don't want to we don't want to belittle the faith of Abraham. It was, it was significant. He had faith that he's willing to give up his only son. He has so much faith in God. But, but it's understandable to some degree because Abraham knew God's character. He, he saw who God is. He saw God's faithfulness in his character. And he, he knew that because God had promised him a son, that even if he sacrificed his son, God perhaps would raise him up again. And he was confident that God was able to do that. And it's remarkable faith, but it's a demonstration of the love for God that Abraham had. But the love of Abraham for God doesn't compare, doesn't begin to compare to God's love for the world. You see, Abraham knew that God is loving, that God is good. And from man's perspective, there, there, is, no, there is infinitely much to be gained from loving God. So as, as we love God, there's, there's much to be gained from loving him, Right? As we love God, we get him in return. We, as we love God, we, we stand to benefit from that transaction. Infinitely so. Abraham had much to gain from loving God. When we love someone else, we sometimes say, I love you. It might be because we find them beautiful. Or because we like their company. Or we find them, them stimulating the conversation. But in contrast, think about it. What did God have to gain? From loving the world. You know, we might find somebody else attractive. There's nothing attractive about the world. Now, the world in this context is, is those who are dead set against God. That's how John always uses the word for world, not only here in his gospel, but in Revelation as well. It's, it's those who are against God, those who are actively opposed to God, the, the world's systems, the world's way of thinking that's opposed to in rebellion to God. The world in all its ugliness, the world in all its badness. And so think about it, what does God stand to gain from loving the world? And I'll think about it again, who is God? Who is this God and who is this Son that is being talked about? See, God, when we put him in our context, we sometimes think of God as like us, but yet God's not like us. He's perfect in every way. That means he's, he's perfectly good. 
In everything he does, he's perfectly good. Um, you would, you would want to be with God because he's, he's incredibly stimulating in conversation and intellect. In every area, God is perfect. In every part of his being, God is likable. He's fulfilling. He's satisfying. And, and think about God in eternity past. He existed, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion with each other, in perfect fellowship with each other. Now think about this. The Holy Trinity eternally, before man ever came on the scene, was eternally happy. Eternally, perfectly joyful, perfectly fulfilled, perfectly complete. Can you imagine that? Perfectly content, perfectly loving. Imagine if you had that kind of relationship with another person or two people. The three of you have this this relationship that in no way is lacking, that is infinite in all its perfections and eternally so what need would you have for anything or anyone else? When, when the Trinity is all-powerful, all-able, all-knowing, there's no need. God wasn't in need of, of us, of mankind. And yet, God's unfathomable love is seen that he gives his only son, the ones who's most dear to him, to become a human, how much did God love the world? He gave his ultimate best, his most worthy, his most valuable, most beloved because of his love. And it's freely given, freely given for the world. God's God's love is not vague, it's infinitely costly. He gave his only son, his eternal son, his infinitely valuable son to suffer for humans, to be lifted up in our place. You ever wonder, does God really love me? Don't wonder at all, for God so loved the world. Those who were alienated from God and hostile to God, God loved the ugly. God loved the smelly. Imagine going to someone saying, I love you because you're really smelly. I love you. You're really stinky, smelly, ugly. Um, there's nothing pleasant about you. I hate your company, but I love you anyway. That would be difficult. And God has this love that is mind-blowing. He loves those who are not only defiled by sin, dead in sin, alienated from him, and rebellion to him and opposed to him. And he gives up the most valuable for God. So loved the world that he gave his only son for those who are hostile. Now, when we think of that verse, sometimes we think about other people, like all those other people out there. Unless we think that, remember how the Apostle Paul helps us in Romans 3, says no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Categorically, none of us. All of us have turned aside. All of us have together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's not merit in any of us on our own, apart from Christ. The world is hostile to God. It hates God. It runs from God. It mocks God. It shuns God, belittles God, the very idea of God. And yet, it says, for God so loved the world? Let your mind be blown apart with that. John tells us the world didn't even recognize Jesus. Jesus made the world, and he comes into the world, and the world didn't recognize him. 
You know, how, how offended are you when you walk into a room with all your friends and they don't even recognize you're there? Imagine being the creator. And this speaks to the scope and the measure of God's love as well. It's not just limited to Israelites. Those become a Jew through rituals. It's the scope of God's love was not just for Israelites. The measure of love is for the whole world. Every child, man, woman, irrespective of birth, creed, ethnicity, merit, every kind of person from every place might know his love. I love the way that a guy named D.A. Carson puts it. He says that God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. And that's you and me. Apart from the love of God, making us alive, making us born again, enabling us to respond to him. This is love beyond what we can imagine. It, in and I hope this morning that the effect is that fills you with wonder at his love. And then I hope you're surprised as well at the means of his love. That the means of God's love are, are surprisingly simple. That the means of God's love, they're surprisingly simple. You think um, it's, it's not easy, but it's surprisingly simple. The means of God's love he talks about here, it doesn't have anything to do with what Nicodemus was coming to him. Nicodemus was coming based in, in confidence based on that he's kept the law. He's been purified. He, he's circumcised. Um, he's kept all these laws and rituals. He, he's, he's the teacher of Israel. And Jesus, he kind of takes some dynamite and he blows all that up. And he says it comes through believing, not through merit, not through earning, not, not through favor, not through special access, not through birth, not through ethnicity. What about that? Doesn't matter. Not through living in the promised land, not through the temple, not, not through keeping the law. None of those things secure God's love. How are we secure in his love? Through believing in Jesus being lifted up for us. The means of God's love are surprisingly simple. He tells the means here through sending his son into the world. In verse 16, look down your Bibles. It says, through, he, he gave his only son. Verse 17, he sent his son. Verse 18, um, the belief is in the name of the son of God. How, what's the means by which we receive the love of God? Oh, it's, it's through believing that God gave his son. It's, it's believing that God sent his son. It's through belief in the name. Everything that name has to do with Jesus. All that Jesus has to do with, all that Jesus came to do, it's believing in that. And look in your Bibles in verse 16 and verse 18 both. It says that whoever believes. It doesn't say whoever practices the right. And then, or, or whoever believes and then keeps himself pure. Or whoever believes and then doesn't mess up. Or whoever believes and doesn't falter. No, whoever is believing actually. It's an active continual believing. The verb there, it's, it's an ongoing belief. Whoever continues to believe. Whoever is believing it's this ongoing present tense, everybody who's believing in him, choosing to believe. It's not just mere belief like the demons have. It's, this is a trusting, this is a, an active trusting, committing to, relying on, basing my life on this. Not perfect, but active. So the question is, are you believing in Jesus? If so, there's a promise. It says, you shall not perish even when you die. 
You're going to live forever. And that's incredible news. It's not based on your efforts. It's not based on your sinlessness. It's not based on you being perfect or believing how strongly you believe it, but it's based in your belief in Jesus. That he was lifted up for you. Now when we read verse 16, we're rightly hopeful and rightly positive, but there's some negative things here too that we need to point out. It's only those who were born again and believe in him that will perish, will not perish and have eternal life. And the implication there is those who are not born again, those who do not believe in him, they will perish and have eternal life. And then, he, and then he, he's, he's laying out for us that all the world deserves condemnation. God's love is great and his means are surprisingly simple. But all the world on our own, we deserve Condemnation. And remember, we were all once the world. We all deserve condemnation. Here's the good news. It's not just the measure of God's love that's unfathomable. The means of God's love is surprisingly simple, but it's also the mission of God's love that's all-inspiring. The mission of his love is all-inspiring. Look down at verses 17 and 18. You see, the purpose of God sending his son into the world for the first time, and I say for the first time because he's going to come back and, and, and judge the world, but this is God sent his son. Initially, we've, we've learned in Revelation, yeah, Jesus does judge, but he came into the world not to bring his judgment. That should be surprising. That should be like a discovery that we see for the first time. He didn't come to judge after thousands of years after, after God creates man, man rebels within, you know, a moment after being created. Man rebels. And then God gives man so many chances over thousands of years until, until he gets to the time of, of Noah. And he says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to reboot here. I'm going to press the reset button. He brings a flood. He wipes everybody out except Noah and his family. So man could have a do-over, and yet then we see how does man respond, continues to go away from God, to reject God. So God gives man his his prophets, and and man kills the prophets. He, he, He raises up Abraham, and he makes covenants with man, and yet his people never faithfully keep the covenants, ever. There's never a time when God's people fully kept his covenant. They kill the prophets, they rebel against the judges, they, rightly, they, they wrongly reject God's kingly rule. And yet, God didn't send his son to judge. That should be surprising. Oh, the mercy and grace of God. Even though mankind deserves judgment, he didn't send his son to condemn the world. What? Why not? The question we ask often is, you know, why do, why do, why do people go to hell? Why, why are people condemned? No, no, no. Why not? Why not everyone? Why, why is not everyone condemned? Because God is infinitely loving, infinitely merciful and kind and gracious. Now you might ask, why in the world does God condemn the world anyway? Well, the answer is here in the text because they reject him. They reject the good news. Those who don't believe in his son are condemned. That's what it tells us in this passage. The world is condemned by God because of their own choice. They're chosen to reject the unfathomable love of God. The world's brought judgment on itself. 
And the coming of Christ gives people the choice of whether or not to believe in Jesus and be saved or reject him and be condemned. And the decision is theirs and will either result in salvation or judgment. And, and, and here's, here's what it says. Look in verse 19. This is the judgment. He told us about this earlier in chapter 1. The light has come into the world. And, and why are people condemned? Oh, not because God sent his son to condemn. No, because people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Instead of acknowledging the light, loving the light, the world loves the darkness and, and does evil deeds. It's, it's like being shut up inside of a dark room where there's dark walls and dark floors and dark ceiling and no windows and no, no the doors are shut and painted in black and everything's black inside of that box and yet somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, come on out. It's light out here. You can see um, everything is good. And the person says, no, I'm, I, I like it in here. I love the darkness That's the imagery. People love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because they don't want to be seen for who they really are. They don't want to be revealed because their deeds are evil. Look in verse 20. It says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Why are people condemned? John's unpacking it for us because they hate the light. They rejected Jesus and they don't want to be exposed they don't want to be exposed. You ever had a conversation with somebody and you're, you're talking to them about the gospel with an unbeliever and you begin to explain that, that we have been created by God and, and so as, as his creatures, we have an obligation to him. He has an authority over us. And then they begin to bristle a little bit. And, and um, God says how we should live and how we're supposed to live because God wants us to ultimately be happy. And, and how you're living is actually contrary to what God says is the way that he calls us to live and what's best for us. And they begin to bristle even more. They say, I don't want to hear that. And they get angry. Go away. Why? Because they don't want to feel bad. They don't want to be, they don't want to feel guilt. They don't want to be exposed. They want to enjoy the darkness. That's what John's telling us. Everybody who does wicked things hates the light, hates Jesus. You see, Jesus is the light, as he said earlier in chapter 1. Back in the Garden of Eden, you remember this? You, you remember the imagery here? Now John is, he's masterfully pointing back. He's pointing back to the Genesis narrative all throughout the first few chapters here. He's already, he's already pointed back to the beginning because he, he says in the beginning was God and then he talks about light and, and remember light and creation and so Jesus is the light and, and now he talks about hiding, being exposed and, and that should make us think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they sinned. What did they do? What was the first thing they did? They hid. Why? Shame. They didn't want to be exposed. They didn't want, they didn't want to have their nakedness seen as if God didn't see it. They didn't want to have their nakedness seen by each other. They didn't want to have their nakedness exposed to God. And so they're hiding as if they can hide from God. And that's what the world does. It's inherent to our nature. And here the words translated as exposed is this connotation of being convicted or approved or reprimanded. It's the idea of bringing something to light that was hidden so that it's seen for what it really is and being corrected and reproved. And, and, and I know that, that I don't like to be corrected. I don't like to be reproved. I don't like to be seen for being wrong. What is that? That's pride. Pride that keeps us. You know, but the same word for being convicted or reproved or reprimanded or being exposed is it's the word we saw in Revelation 3. In Revelation 3.19 it says, those whom I love, 
I reprove. I, I expose to reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Somebody's convicted of their sins are wrong, they have a choice. Either we can respond to God, walk in the light and repent and believe, choose to say no, or, or we can choose to hide. When I, when I was younger, I, I learned to lie in order to cover up my sins. Maybe, maybe you found yourself there as well. My, my parents, they loved me, they tried to raise me according to godly standards. They didn't understand God's grace really well. They, um, I was aware of a lot of rules externally, when I sinned, I felt ashamed. I, feel, I feared punishment. I felt like I was unworthy, unacceptable to them and to God. Maybe you've struggled with similar feelings before. Maybe you do now. My response was to hide. Um, and I'm not physically hiding. I learned to hide bravely, hide behind the lies, bold lies, hide behind doing and saying things that would get me accepted, hide because I didn't want to be exposed for who I really was because if people found out who I really was, I'd be rejected. And, and maybe God would reject me too if I... So I had to pretend. When I was guilty, I felt like God would reject me because my behavior wasn't good enough and I was partially right. You see, God does reject and condemn all who do evil and wicked deeds who remain in the dark. But on our own, it's because we merit that condemnation. Because we've rejected Him. And what do we do? We try to hide to avoid punishment. You know, I don't know any child, maybe you have a child, maybe you were a different child, but I don't know any child that's not tempted to lie at some point to get out of trouble. And honestly, many adults are tempted to lie. Or at least we're, we're tempted to minimize our wrongs, right? We're tempted to minimize those things that we don't like about ourselves so that we can get out of trouble or not have people see us for who we really are. We're, we're tempted to not really share what we really think when we're in fellowship together in a small group and, and we're trying to apply the, the word to our lives because we don't people want people to think just we're ugly. Um, but ultimately, it's not possible to hide from God's penetrating gaze. And in Hebrews 4, it talks about this. It says, for the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, Oh, here's that language again. Being exposed. Every creature is exposed and naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Yet the all-inspiring mission of God is that he gave his love so that all those who are exposed will come to him in the light and be clothed. Clothed in his righteousness. Not condemned. He gave his son not so that the world would be condemned, that the world might, might come to him. The world might, might come to him and, and, and put on his clothes, put on his righteousness and the means of God's love. It's, it's surprisingly simple and humbling. It requires that we humble ourselves, believe in him, and that his great love is so unfathomable that he give his son for us in our place. And his mission is awe-inspiring and astonishing. He gave his love so that we wouldn't be condemned. If, if you are struggling with guilt or condemnation or maybe like me, you fail and when you fail, you feel like a loser and, and you feel far from God, this verse is meant to transform your thinking. God could not love you more. He will not love you less. He so loved you, he didn't withhold the most infinitely valuable one 
from you, but gave him for us all. And God didn't say, now you have to keep it. Now you have to earn it. Now you have to stay there. Now you've got to be good enough. Now you've got to pull yourself up on your bishops. No, whoever does what? Believes. And then what kind of life do we get? A, a temporary probationary life? No, this is the eternal life. The, the life that has to do with God's eternal joy. God's eternal life. We receive that eternal life. Now, how do we receive it? Oh, we're born again. What does that mean? He's removed that old nature. We're dead to that old nature, and we've been born again. This passage should give you mind-blowing confidence that just seems wrong. In one sense, it is. But really, it's the only thing right. The only thing right is to believe in God's great love for us. To, to see his love, to respond to his love and belief, to put aside our pride, to put aside our self-confidence, to repent. And, and I know as I was studying this passage this week, I wrestled with the two things. Well, first thing I wrestled with was, I don't feel like preaching a passage everybody's heard a thousand times. And I know it's not a good attitude, right? But you're thinking, how am I going to make this fresh and alive? Well, that, well, first of all, that's not really, that's the Holy Spirit's job, Right? Um, but also then, I experienced something else that I wrestled with. I wrestled with the fact that why would God love me so much? And the answer is because that's who God is. Because he chose to love me. And then, and then I wrestled with all of those ways that I've fallen short and I realized that, wait a minute, I need to apply this passage to my own life so that I don't, I don't wallow in guilt and condemnation. I don't remain there. And then I want this passage to function in my own heart and in the life of the church the same way. And then it's meant to inspire gratitude in our hearts. It's meant to give us fresh joy and excitement and wonder. We are the undeserving world that God so loved. In our hope, is in his love and in his son that he sent because of his love. That was the motive. That was the measure. In this mission to redeem us, to save us from condemnation and judgments that he might give us eternal life, that's meant to create joy. And then also, it's, it's, it's meant for us to have hope. And the last verse talks about this, is we see that, that we're actually responding and we're coming to the light and we're seeing that we have, we, we're, we're coming to the light, we're, we're doing what's true, what's in accordance with the truth. It's clearly seen that our deeds have been carried out or actually worked out is the real word there, the worked out, carried out by God. That if you are responding to God in belief and in some way responding to him, you need to have more confidence that, hey, God has worked this in me because that's the only way for it to happen because I was previously the world. So church, let's have great cause for rejoicing and hope for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Um, I'll have the band go ahead and come up and let's pray. Father, 
I pray that we would be inspired by your love. We would be amazed by your love. We would wonder at your love, that we would experience fresh gratitude and joy because of the measure of your love, the means of your love, and the, and the mission of your love. And Lord, might we rejoice in you and you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.